I'm going to continue here on my message on a series on what is God like. Um, glad you guys are all here. Um, so a few of you guys saw that I posted on Facebook that I spent some time with um, a friend yesterday, um, uh, an old friend from school. Uh, so some of the things I, I didn't share on there was that, one, the, the guy's been homeless for a year now. And uh, I'm sharing this with you guys because I want to remind you, we all have friends that need Christ. And sometimes we think evangelism, you know, get on a bullhorn and preaching and, and doing that kind of thing. But the reality is that we all know people. All of us do. All of us here, there's that saying, that, that, that theory, right? The six degrees of separation. There's six degrees of separation that separate us from probably every single person on this planet. We all know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. Okay, so I know Ed Leonard, who was the CTO of DreamWorks. Ed was very good friends with Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey Katzenberg knows Bill Clinton. He's met presidents. He's met King Hussein. I mean, six degrees of separation. We all know somebody that knows somebody. So we're, we're more connected than we think. And we can really, we want to talk about really changing the world. It's got to start at home. It's got to start with the people we know. It's got to start with our neighbors, our friends. Some of us need to look up some old friends and find out how they're doing. Maybe they're hurting. Maybe they need someone that they can talk to, you know. And uh, so I spent time with him. We had some lunch. We went and hung out at the library. I, you know, I, I gave him some money. He was really grateful, and he felt ashamed at the same time, you know. Um, but uh, we, we can't do everything for everybody, but we can do little things. And, and I'll tell you what, that that time spent with him meant a lot to him. And it meant a lot to me, too, but it really meant. And, and so I say this to you guys to encourage you, you know, don't, don't, don't think that, that you can't help somebody. Don't think that your life can't impact somebody else's. It can and it's these random acts of kindness, these, these, these acts of kindness. And, and, you know, I'm open with him about God and everything else. I, wasn't, I don't usually pray over meals, and I don't want to put, make people feel weird, so I wasn't sure what he wanted to do. So I always wait to see what somebody does. And he bowed his head and he prayed, you know. And, so, and I prayed with him. And, and uh, we, we just don't know. We, 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 we are going to be the Christ that most people will see on this life. And, and how we choose to represent Christ is really up to us, whether we have a bad image of God and we represent God as hateful, vengeful, retributive. You know, this is what we're doing. We're studying what is God like. And, and there's a caption there. We become what we worship. You know, the early church fathers, the reason they were developing doctrines and teaching is because there was a lot of false notions of what God is like. So they would be having conversations. So one bishop would say, well, I think God's like this. And he would start describing what he thinks God's like. And the other uh, church fathers would say, no, that's not quite right. And I need to develop language that will help me explain, but what you're saying is not right. You know, so they would describe God uh, as, as, as the Trinity. They would describe God as he wears many hats. You know, one day he's wearing the hat of the Holy Spirit. One day he's wearing the hat of... And they'd say, no, 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 that, that's not... You, you kind of get, you, you understand that he's Trinity, but you don't understand it correctly. And so they formulate words like the Trinity and all these other languages that they use. But I think that we've moved so far away from what Christ is like that I think we're having to do that once again. We're having to say, no, that's not what God's like. You, you, you get portions of it right, but that's not what God is like. So we're working through Brad Jersak, Brad Jersak, sorry, Brad, Jersak's book 
a more Christ-like God, okay? So all my, all my lessons are based on his, and I'm quoting him quite a bit, and we're just using him as talking points. And these are some of the questions he asks. He says, did God create me in his image, or have I created God in my image? Who actually made whom? And we have to think about that. Is the God we serve a God we've now fashioned in our image? Is he now the the American God that we worship, the American, the USA Jesus? What is the God that we have uh, manufactured in our mind? He asks this question, or he makes a statement, our false images of God can be overcome by a shift from biblical literalism to a return to Christ himself as our final authority, a move which challenges the unchristlike religious ideas of God so often reinforced by cherry-picking scriptures. And I'm going to show you just like an example of how we cherry-pick scriptures to build a case for what we want to believe. Now, when we say the Word of God, we're not talking about this. I'm holding a Bible here for listeners online here. This is not the Word of God. These are the scriptures, and these scriptures testify about Christ, and they're they're, they're where we learn about Him. Jesus said, all authority is given to me. Jesus is the final authority, not this book. All authority is given to Christ. And I keep saying this, that everything has to bow to him, including this book. Okay? And and, and so when we we take the Bible and simply read it flatly, we're we're a kid-friendly church, so don't worry about it. (laughs) Uh, So when we we, uh, take the Bible and we read it like literally and flat in one, one voice, we lose what it's trying to teach us about God. So here's some questions, okay? So part of what we end up doing as us and much of society, we end up with a bunch of what-ifs, right? As you start thinking about God and as you start thinking about who He is, right, we start to, we, we inevitably end up with questions with, or we should, what if I believed in the wrong God? Would He still love me? What, 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 if, what, if, I, what, what if the Jesus we believe in now is not correct? Would God still love us? What if we had been born in a Muslim country with Muslim parents? Would we be embracing a Muslim faith? You need to think about these things because the culture and where we live affects us a lot. Everything that you and I, a lot of us, even if you've never been a Christian, if you live in America, you have Christian ideologies, whether you like it or not. You just do. Now, if you grew up in a Muslim country and you weren't a Muslim, guess what? You'd probably have Muslim ideologies anyhow. So we are the product, Jersek says, we are the product of what we've been taught God is like. And it occurred over many generations and centuries, and our religion had obviously evolved over time. And had our God also evolved? Has our God also evolved in our mind that God evolved with us in time? And so are we asking these questions because we're heretics, right? I was taught in church not to ask questions. I was taught, oh, no, no, you shouldn't ask those questions. Don't worry about it. Or, or a pastor saying, well, I'm the authority. You just follow what we believe. This is what we believe. This is, this is what our founder taught us, and this is what we hold on to. So are these signs of heresy, or are they signs of sanity? I was talking to Bobby um, earlier this week. Or I don't know if it was this week or last week, but what did you say? Science? He said, question everything. Mm-hmm. Question everything, right? We question everything. How, how are you going to grow and learn if you don't ask questions? And sometimes we may not, sometimes the question is more important than the answer. We have to learn to ask questions, not to be afraid, right? Uh, 
in his book, he quotes this uh, Indian yogi and mystic. His name's uh, Sash uh, Guru Alex. And he asked the question, what is God, right? He's, he's in India talking to folks, and he's, and he's in, in Hindu, right? God's everything, right? He's animals, he's everything, right? He says, so what is man, woman, animal, dog? Is, is God these things? And basically, he's warning us that your ideas of God may be no more than an exaggerated version of yourself, of yourself. So St. Gregory said this, it is difficult to conceive God but to define him in words is an impossibility. It is impossible to express him and yet more impossible to conceive him. So in other words, Jersek says that the great peril is that we worship ourselves via an image of God we create out of our own temperament. Then easily enough, we find scriptures to establish our image as biblical. It's very easy to, I, I, I can define, I can, I can create a God that is pure wrath and hates everybody and only a few people are going to be saved. I mean, Jehovah Witnesses teach something like that. John Calvin taught that only the elect are, are, are destined to heaven and, and God elects those to be damned to hell, right? I mean, so you can fabricate just about any version of God that you want. And what, what, I know this sounds hopeless because it's like, well, what are we going to do? How do we read the Bible? Well, that's what we're learning, right? There is a way to properly interpret the scriptures. So I, I had preached a sermon a while back, and I, I titled it, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Right? So we have all these Jesus that we invent, right? Prozac Jesus, cage fighter Jesus. Me and Bobby were actually at a men's discipleship once, and they had a cage fight on state. I have no idea what that metaphor was for anything at all to this day. I know I'm not as smart as them, but I did not get why we had cage fighters on the on the stage. Or how about hippie Jesus versus Rambo Jesus? Uh, my favorite is USA Jesus, right? He's really popular in America. How, versus United Nations Jesus. Or think of terms in our, in our current century, in our 20th century, right? We had Gandhi Jesus, Martin Luther King Jesus, John Lennon Jesus. On a much grander scale of national culture, isn't it amazing how closely God resembles our respective nations, right? our nations in terms of what religions they embrace overall as a people and stuff. I mean, you can look at the American God versus the Canadian God, right? The Canadian God, they tend to practice tolerance a lot, common good, uh, versus America is all about the individual, right? We're very individualistic people. Capitalism, get rich, who cares about the poor, just grow financially and, and accumulate all this wealth and property until there's no end. So we develop ideas about God, different ideas, sometimes bad ideas and even deadly ones. When we misread the Bible, when we don't read it properly, we can come up with ideas about God that can be very deadly. So we believe that God is not merely a delusion and much more than a projection of ourselves, right? We understand that, right? So if, if there is a God of love related, revealed in Jesus, then I don't need or want to purge myself of the faith, hope, and love, and life I've experienced in Jesus, right? Because all of us here will say that, no, I have experienced God's love. Even if we may have had a false notion of Christ or a misunderstanding, we have, we have experienced 
uh, God's love revealed in Christ. And one of the things we don't want to purge ourselves of is faith, hope, and love, right? These are things that we want to retain in our lives. These are things that we want to retain. So regardless of what others may say about Jesus or a non-belief in God, we don't want to abandon following him <coughs> because we don't have it all figured out correctly. Keep in mind that when the disciples followed Jesus, do you think they had it all figured out? None of them did. Why do you think Paul wrote so many letters? Because they didn't have it all figured out. Paul's trying to figure it out. But they followed him. They recognized something was different about Jesus. They didn't see, they didn't see Jesus and thought, oh, oh my God, he's God. That's not what they thought. They thought he was a prophet. They saw something different about him. He's saying radical things that make no sense then and make no sense now. Love your enemies. Blessed are the peacemakers. Unless you're Monty Python, then you heard, blessed are the cheesemakers. You guys ever watch Monty Python? They're great, man. He goes, why is he blessing the cheesemakers? <laughs> blessed, those were the people that were way far away. They couldn't hear him. You know, they go, why is he blessing the cheesemakers? <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers. So Jesus is now talking about peace. He's talking about this is how God is revealed to us. And, 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 and it's shocking. It's jarring. It's jarring to us as American culture because why? American culture is a violent culture. It's a, it's, it's a culture that, 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 that operates on a lot of violence. So what is the alternative, right? So, so we have to start with a sober of awareness how we have obscured God with our own ideas and ideologies. And until then, we have to recognize our vulnerability uh, to, to worn out these superstitions and these agendas that, that come out. So there's, so has anybody ever gone wine tasting? I haven't never gone, but so I, so tell me, so you guys tell me the experience here. So once you drink some wine, are you supposed to wash your palate off with some water afterwards? Do you rinse? Do they encourage you to do that? You just keep tasting? Or you eat some bread, some crackers, some breads, right? Because you... Yeah, you have to clear your palate, right? Because if you don't, then you're going to mix the, the, the flavors. You're not going to be able to catch the subtleties of the flavor. And that's kind of what we need to do with our understanding of God. We need to eat some bread, right? We need to cleanse our palate, right? Uh, so, so we have to clear our mouth of the previous taste before we go on. And, and so, so that's kind of what we have to do. Many of us carry a bad taste in our mouth about God. Many of us carry a bad taste of teachings. Many of us carry some old hurts from those teachings that we were taught that, that, that have misinformed us about who God is. And a lot of us got a bad taste in our mouth, right? We've been jarred, we're jaded. And, 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 and so we, we, need to, we need to eat some, uh, some bread. Here's a couple of scriptures, Psalms 119, 103. It says, your word is so pleasing to my taste buds, it's sweeter than honey in my mouth. Taste and see how good the Lord is. The one who takes refuge in him is truly happy. See, I think that we need to cleanse our palates from that bitterness, from that, from that bitter taste of God that we've been taught. And I believe that God's healing grace, this bread, right? The, the healing grace of God, the bread, and Jesus' gospel truth, which is the water, right? Jesus says, I'm living water, I think can wash out that sourness that we've ate. I think it can, it can cleanse us. And I think it can pre prepare us for the sweetness of his word, right? It's sweeter than honey in my mouth. Your word is. Taste and see that the Lord is good, that God is good. So I'm going to look at some common unchristlike like images. 
I'm going to look at a few that Brad Jersek lays out. He calls this one God the doting grandfather. I used to call, I, I, I refer to this one as God the genie. And a genie is one of the examples he has. So this is the God who does whatever, uh, a God who does whatever I please at the prayerful snap of my fingers, right? Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> right? Come on, Jesus. I prayed for finances. I prayed, I claimed that house. It's mine in Jesus' name. It's a God who is syrupy, nice, and rather naive. A fairy godmother who grants every wish. He's a genie, right? Where we rub our magic Bible. We rub our magic Bible and he gives us our wishes and our commands in Jesus' name, right? This is kind of that doting grandfather that we think that, 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 that God just does whatever we want him to say. So let me give you some scripture examples, right? So here's a way people misuse the Bible. So Psalms 34, I'm sorry, 37.4 says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. And didn't Jesus say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Matthew 7, 7. And he also assures us, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask. Matthew 21, 21. And even Psalms 91 assures us, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. See, if I take all the scriptures and just string them along, nothing bad should ever happen to me. Right? Right? I just build a doctrine, right? Hey, God's going to give me the desires of my heart. Well, my desire is I want to be a billionaire. That's what my desire is. And he said, ask, and it'll be given to me. He says, if I believe, I'll receive whatever I ask. I believe God, right? And so you can see how we can string, you can string scriptures along, just cherry pick. We call it cherry pick, right? Uh, Michael Harding calls it O McDonald scripture reading, right? Here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse. O McRobert had a doctrine, E-I-E-I-O. So this is a quote you guys probably heard before, right? The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, right? It's a great formula as long as it works. But what happens when tragedy strikes in your life? What happens with you or a loved one is stricken by cancer and God doesn't heal them and they die? I was hearing a story the other day about an individual saying that his friend had cancer. Doctor verified everything. God healed him. Six months later, it came back, and within two months, he was dead. He says, and we were rejoicing, praising God. He says, we don't understand these things. See, this statement works. The Bible says it. I believe it. It settles it. Everything's all great. Everything's all good, right? Until, until someone you know, maybe a church person, maybe one of us or a family member or, or a friend, right? Their life unravels or it implodes or someone dies at a young age. I had a friend uh, that just passed away recently, a young man from cancer, right? Until we see a friend that's maybe kidnapped, abducted or raped or, or abused. When does that now work for us? Or until another uh, falls off the wagon, right? We have friends that are doing good. They weren't alcoholics. They're not doing great. And, and now they're drinking again. They're binging. They, maybe they, they've wrecked their home and they're homeless. See, we, 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 we could, life can go on and on, right? With, with just tragedy after tragedy, right? Car accidents, incurable diseases, mental illnesses, suicide, earthquakes, tsunamis, all these things. Or maybe until we ourselves become our own worst enemy, and, and we hurt ourselves, right? We, we unravel. We start to harm others. We don't want to face the consequences of what we do. 
But until we realize that God, in fact, allows absolutely anything and every kind of evil and depths and suffering, we're always going to be wrestling, why isn't God good? God allows everything. Christians don't like to face up to that. But look at the reality of life. Look at life. Stop, stop listening to preachers that tell you that these things don't happen. They do happen. And it isn't because God cursed them. It's not. God is not. God would never look at you, Christy, or you, Jason, and say, you're cursed. He never does that. God speaks blessing into our lives. People say, well, where's God then in all this? Where's God in all this? God's with the victim. He always has been. He's always with the outcast. He's right there. When someone's dying of cancer, he's right there with them. See, we expect God to obey us. And when he doesn't, we unravel and life no longer has purpose and makes any sense. Let me read to you out of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 9. It says, don't feel sorry for yourselves or have you forgotten how good parents treat children and that God regards you as his children? My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline, uh, but don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines, the child he embraces. He also corrects. God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment. It's training, the normal experience of children. Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us, so why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? See, I think that a lot of the things that I used to look at trials as something God was doing against me. I used to look at trials or problems in my life as something that, that God had abandoned me or He didn't care. I remember losing my job at one point, and I lost everything, lost my home, everything. And I thought, where are you, God? And, and, and I really felt God speaking to me. It says, this is part of the crisis I was going through where I'm trying to rediscover God. And, or, or maybe this is one of the things that propelled me into rethinking God because for the first time in my life, I'm not blessed. What's happening? Am I cursed? I'm starting to question things. Well, I love God. Why is this happening to me? <clears throat> and God began showing me that these are all opportunities to be like Him. See, when someone rejects you, Guess what? Christ was rejected as well. When someone hates you, well, guess what? They hated Christ. And let me tell you something. They didn't hate Christ because he preached some ugly, hateful, retributive, you're going to hell message. They hated Christ. You know why? Because he was good. Because he was good. Read the Gospels and look at how he sides. The only time you ever see Jesus angry or upset or he's, he's, he's talking judgment passages is with the religious people. Read every judgment passage in the Gospels. They're always with religious people, never with the outcasts, never with those that are despised, never with those that are hurting. You know, next time an atheist comes up to you and says that, well, I don't need God, just lose. Learn to lose. Jesus lost, right? He lost the fight. He lost the battle. And then tell him, you know, you're probably right. You don't need God. Because Jesus said, I came for the sick. I came for the broken. Maybe you're not sick and broken. You have no need of Jesus. And let them chew on that for a while. All right, here's the other one. God the deadbeat dad. I was thinking about this one and I wondered, 
if this one's affected me in some ways. My, my dad wasn't a deadbeat dad. He was a, uh, he was a little deadbeat dad. <laughs> so they imagine God as one who abandons us. God, the dad who was powerless to intervene when I was bullied. God, the dad who walked out the door one day and never came back. God, the dad I needed to listen and reply, but never visited or, or answered my calls, right? I think about this because sometimes I have a hard time with prayer, you know? And then I think that maybe it has something to do with my image of my own father. Especially the, the last one, right? God, the dad I needed to be proud of me when I succeeded and supportive when I failed. You know, uh, I've talked about my dad pretty openly before. You know, my dad was a bipolar and had a lot of... I didn't know this growing up, okay? I just... He's just my dad, right? And I didn't know this. And so my dad sometimes would just be absent. And when I wanted my dad to be proud of me, he wasn't around, right? But then I do remember times where he would normalize and he was very supportive and very compassionate. And, and I know I get my sensitivity from him. You know, I was talking to Becky the other day about, uh, I just recalled this story. Uh, when I was a little kid, probably like uh, his age over there, Isaac, the one who wants to go by Eddie. It's probably his age and I was watching the $6 million man. I don't know if any of you guys are old enough to remember that. I love that show, right? He was a, a bionic man, right? Uh, they cost $6 million to rebuild them. And I used to watch this every week. And one night I fell asleep. And then my mom wakes me up when it's over. I was so mad. I'm crying. And she's telling me, why are you crying? She goes, stop crying. She goes, you cry for everything. And I go, why didn't you wake me up? And she says, well, you were resting and sleeping. I didn't want, I go, well, you know, I love this show. And she's like, go to bed, go to sleep. And uh, so I was a sensitive little kid, you know. I'm still now I'm a sensitive grown-up. <laughs> but our images in our lives sometimes causes us to imagine God in certain ways. And we have to be honest about these things, that we impose some of these things on God, right? I think there's a lot of people that suffer from this, that they see God as a deadbeat God, a deadbeat dad that doesn't care about them, right? And so you see this a lot in, in, in people that live in isolation, people that, that are alone, that don't want to talk to people. But what they're really crying out for, listen to me, they're crying out for spiritual mothers and fathers that will adopt them and mentor them. You and I have a great role to play in society. This is what Jesus says, repent, change your mind, change your heart. The kingdom of heaven's at hand. I've come to bring peace, to bring hope. But I bring it to those that are destitute, those that are broken. Those that think highly of themselves, well, maybe they don't need God. And they'll figure it out at some point. Here's the one that, is the popular one in America. God, the punitive judge, meticulous micromanager, or the harsh taskmaster. This brand of God is very popular among fundamentalists in America because this God galvanizes self-righteousness and judgment. This God promotes you to be self-righteous, to point your finger at everybody but you. This God causes you to be highly judgmental about everything. So here's some things that... Uh, Jersak says, he says, living under the tyranny of the punisher, God, are we living under this tyranny? He says, even apart from religion, were successes praised and failures punished? Was there an obvious distinction between good and bad behavior accompanied by rewards or penalties? 
Were there mixed messages that added anxiety? Did you frequently hear about God's condemnation of sin? I did. Every sermon I ever heard was condemnation about sin. Every men's discipleship that I ever went to, pardon, can I say something in front of the kids? Are they old enough? You sure? It's it's sexual. You sure? Every sermon I heard was, don't masturbate or you're going to go to hell. This is the punishment, everything. I mean, it was horrible. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) They're going to Google it. (laughs) Sorry, boys. Did you frequently hear about God's condemnation of sin? Were these sins spelled out in detail along with their potential consequences, right? We're constantly being threatened. If you do this sin, if you do that, if you do that, if you do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. You're like, ah, I never even thought of doing that. I think I'm going to do it now. (laughs) Did you often hear hellfire and brimstone preaching with high-strung calls to repentance with many tears? Were you exhorted to examine and review every sin before the Lord under the threat of eating and drinking damnation on yourselves? Was there a keen sense of exclusion and embrace us and them, insiders and outsiders? All these things is what I experienced in church, right? These constant hellfire and brimstone preaching, right? They're all Jonathan Edward fans. Uh, hands in the, in the uh, what's it called? Angry God. Saints in the hands of an angry God. I think that's what it is. Jonathan Edward was a high, pious revivalist, and this is the kind of stuff he would preach. So what is God like? Did your sins, think about these. these, are, these are, I put all these questions because I really like them because I want you to think about this. Did your sins endanger your sense of belonging? Did you recognize loved ones or yourself as black sheep in this system? Maybe you were the black sheep. I was always the black sheep at church, man. I never fit in. I'm like, I'm like, I just used to look at people and go, I'm never going to be as good as you guys. So either you like me or you don't. I'm just not going to fit in. Was there an urgency around end times judgment, either in this world or the next? Were you afraid of being left behind or on the edge of the lake of fire? Ooh, man, in the 80s when I was growing up, there's a movie called uh, uh, Thief in the Night. Whoo. Chopping people's heads off, left behind, the mark of the beast. I lived in terror. So in your own heart today, ask yourself these questions. Are you tormented by old guilt about wrongs done? Are you stuck in remorse and regret no matter how sincerely or often you try to say sorry? Do internal voices accuse and condemn you for being a bad girl or boy? Niño, niña? <laughs> do you punish yourself with hurtful words? Listen, do you punish yourself with hurtful words such as stupid or exercise self-imposed consequences when you stumble? You ever fall, just made a mistake, even if it's a sin, and now you're just imposed all these condemnation upon yourself? Did you ever inflict self-harm? Are you obsessed with measuring up or feel like you're not really good enough? Do you ever feel there's something wrong with you but can't put your finger? I felt my whole life in church, I felt there's something wrong with me and I couldn't put my finger on it. It wasn't me. It was all those condemning preachers. Do you struggle with shame? Yes. I used to struggle with shame. 
When you imagine Judgment Day, what do you expect? And does it cause fear? When circumstances don't go your way, do you think perhaps God is punishing you? That, that's something really important to think about, right? When we think something doesn't go right, is God cursing us? Do we think that God's punishing me? When things go well, do you just assume God is rewarding you? Like we can look at people, right? Like you can look at an earthquake and people survive and they go, God spared me. Really? He spared you and not the rest? Why? Why are you so lucky? You better go change the world, become Steve Jobs or something, if that's really the case. Mm-hmm. What does grace mean to you in these cases? What does God's grace mean to you? See, growing up, I used to hear sermons, there's sin in the land. There's sin in the land, and we've got to find it out and cast it out of our church. I always envisioned they were going to carry me, you know, like everybody, and I'm just going to get tossed out, right? <laughs> Like, like uh, who is that, Jonah? He's on the ship, and they go, somebody's done wrong here. We need to throw him off the boat. And Jonah's hiding, going, oh, no, they're looking for me. Right? They're going to throw me off the ship. All it is is scapegoating, right? We've got to find in the camp who we've got to expose. See, when we love this way, when we love this way, the, the manner I'm talking about here, we open the door for the accuser to come in and run rampant in our midst. The Bible calls Satan the accuser. And when we start living this way with these ideologies, there's sin in the camp and who and condemnation, you know, all we're doing, we're opening the door for Satan to come in and accuse, to accuse you, 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 me, all of us. And that's all we do, right? And how do you think we become self-righteous? Because we become the accuser. Because we're now in place of judgment. I'm now accusing you and you and you and you of all your sins, all your shortfallings, everything. We are told that all that stands in our way is the sin, and that's holding back the blessing, right? But let me ask you this. Has this sort of hatred of sin and self-hatred and hatred of the sinner? It's a very thin line, isn't it? Isn't it? When we start to walk that line, it's very thin, right? So here's, here's what uh, Brad summarizes. He says, God has indeed rendered a, divisive, a, decisive, sorry, a decisive judgment through the cross, and his verdict is mercy. See, we talk about God judging, but we want God to judge like us, right? We want God to not forgive. We want God to hurt people. We want God to make them pay their price, right? But God says, no, I am going to judge, and I judge mercy. That's my judgment. I judge mercifully. See, think about who Jesus is, right? Don't don't forget this Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the man that walked on this planet. He dined with sinners, right? He welcomed prostitutes and tax collectors. He was an advocate for the adulterous, and he, (coughs) he restored the disqualified. I never see Jesus, as I said earlier, spouting out hatred about towards a sinner. I never see Jesus using the law to accuse and condemn them. I never see that. Read the Gospels yourself, and if you find it. Let's take a look at it. Okay, we'll rip that page out. I'm just kidding. So when we preach repentance, it's this embedded message, right? That the kingdom of God is at hand. And we have to repent and believe in what? The good news. The good news. As I said earlier, right? The only time I see Jesus pointing his finger and rebuking 
It's to the very oppressive religious people that all they did was oppress others. All they did was subjugate people. All they did was, like what Jesus says, you make twice the sons of hell that you are. You damn people. You destroy people's lives. But this is the sort of revivals that we think is happening. See, Jesus' response to sinner is never condemnation. It never is. His response to sin is never condemnation, but it's an invitation to an unfailing love and an enduring mercy of his Father. See, God has indeed rendered this judgment and its mercy. So Jesus comes to reveal the love of the Father for those already perishing and suffering condemnation. Listen, let me read that again. Jesus comes to reveal the love of the Father for those already perishing and suffering condemnation. We're already condemned is what the Bible says. We're already condemned. And he comes to us in our state of condemnation and he reveals God's love to us. See, Jesus didn't come announcing condemnation, did he? He didn't come and say, hey, my father condemns you all. We never read that. But he came to save us from condemnation. He didn't, uh, I'm sorry, he doesn't come to save us from condemnation of the Father either, right? But rather to reveal the love of the Father. Instead of God being a punishing judge, the Father of Jesus, he waits on us and he watches for us. So the question here is, does the gospel Jesus, the one we read about, ever seem like a doting grandfather? When we read it, do we walk away that he's a genie, that he's just this easy? Is he a punishing judge or a deadbeat dad? No. So what's he really like? Let me read to you this uh, story here by Jeff Turner. He posted this on Facebook the other day. He says that this is a Jeff Turner, uh, just posted it a couple of days ago. He says, I was once a very confident preacher. I was too. By that I mean I once taught with gut level assurance that I had most things figured out. I did too. I thought at one point I really had God in a box and had them all figured out. Uh, combined with a healthy or unhealthy dose of bravado, right? We tend to get prideful and arrogant and overconfident of our understanding of God. I would make brazen claims about who God was and had little to no problem making definitive declarations about his nature and character. The more that life happened to me, however, and the more I grew, uh, embraced a dangerous exercise of thought. He says, I've, I've embraced this idea that I'm actually using my brain now and sought to study big issues out for myself, the less confident I became in making any definitive statements about God. There are really only two absolute or axiomatic statements made about God in Scripture, and they are that He is both light and love. While neither of these statements are followed by subpoints that go on to unpack all the implications of what light and love denotes, they most certainly reveal a mirage of things that God is not. So if God is love, then he is not hate. If God is love, then he is not war. If God is love, then he is not discrimination or exclusion. If God is love, then he is not violent, retribution, or hostility. If God is light, then he is not darkness. Anything, therefore, that is inherently evil, or to put it more simply, anything that you or I could not get, let me say it again, or to put it more simply, anything that you or I could not get away with doing as human beings, God does not participate in. More than just, 
more than just not participating in such things, though they do not originate from him. The two absolute statements, love and light, we have of God rule out a hell of a lot of things that God is not. But they do not necessarily leave us with the basket full of things that he is. However, the more we use these absolute truths concerning God's nature to deconstruct the things that he cannot be, the closer we come to being able to understand who he is. So many are fearful of the process of deconstruction, and that, I think, is the biggest obstacle that all of us face, is that we're afraid. We're afraid of of really discovering who Jesus is because of so many things that we've been taught. He says so many are fearful of the process of deconstruction simply because it approaches the character of God, the character of God from the negative. That is, it approaches God by speaking of Him in terms of what He is not. And remember what I said earlier, the early church fathers, they spent a lot of time saying, no, that's not what God's like. And it forced them to think, what is God like? Because people kept saying, well, I think God's like this. I think God's wrathful and vengeful. No, 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 no. That's not what he's like. The truth is, though the very concept of God is so shrouded in mythology and human projection that the only way to ever hope to even be able to make one absolute statement about him for ourselves is to embrace the process of deconstruction that the two absolute statements concerning God found in Scripture initiates. Get very, very comfortable with the God is not process. In other words, get very comfortable with saying, no, that's not what God is. If he doesn't fit into the definitions of love and light, you have to start thinking, no, that's not what he is. Because it's, it's one you might never grow beyond. We may never grow beyond saying God is not. However, it is the process of God is not that you grow ever closer to a personal understanding of God is. Right? So what is God? He's a restorer of lives. That's what God does. He restores lives. He fixes us. I don't mean he fixes us by way of money. I'm closing here, by the way. This is uh, my last slide. He's not, I don't mean he restores our lives by making us feel good or blessing us. He restores our lives by healing us on the inside. Right? Keep in mind that Jesus is the one who sat at the well, and he's the one that restored the Samaritan woman, isn't he? He restored her life. He brought her back into a place of community. He restored Zacchaeus, his integrity, and offered him friendship. He saved and restored the woman caught in adultery, right? This is what we see Jesus doing, this woman caught in adultery to, to morality and life. He restored the blind and the deaf to wholeness. He restored outcasts. I mean, all of us should be able to relate to this one, right? I think all of us, okay, maybe just me, were outcasts and he restores us, right? The lepers and the bleeding woman, he restores their lives. He restores the sanity of the demonized. Even the harshest rebukes were often of restoration to the unrepented. When we see Jesus in action, and this is what you have to be able to start seeing, when you see Jesus in action, what do we see? We see the true heart of God. We see the true heart of God, and He's a restorer of lives. Let me read to you. I'm going to close with this verse. It's my favorite verse. It's in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 and 19. It says that Jesus went to Nazareth, where He had been raised. And on the Sabbath, He went to the synagogue, as He normally did, and stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave Him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. 
he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it's written. So he's reading out of Isaiah chapter 61, okay? And in Luke here, chapter 4, verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops, rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. You know what's really interesting about this verse? He's quoting out of Isaiah 61. In the last part of that he quotes, he says, and to proclaim the year of the Lord, you know that that verse continues, it doesn't end. There's a comma, the sentence continues. You, anybody wonder why Jesus stopped there? I'll tell you why he stopped there. Let me t- read it to you out of, reads out of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, 2, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. Why do you suppose Jesus left that out? Why do you think? He's not. Jesus is reinterpreting scripture for us. In many ways, he's saying that not everything that the Old Testament says about me is correct. If you read the Bible with one voice and you don't seek the voice of Jesus in the scriptures and you don't use Jesus to help you interpret the scriptures, you're going to end up with a weird God. You're going to end up with a God that makes sense to you, that fits your sensibilities or ideologies or what you want God to do. But if you interpret the scriptures through Christ, I keep saying this, he has to become our hermeneutical lens. I hear a lot of people say, well, I have a Christ-centered theology. Yeah, you do. But the problem is, who's your Christ? Who's your Christ? You do have a Jesus theology, but who's your Jesus? What Jesus? Is it Prozac Jesus? Is it USA Jesus? So we don't need a Jesus theology. What we need is a Jesus hermeneutics, a way, how do we interpret scriptures? Through the life of Jesus. Everything through the life of Jesus. We look at Jesus and we read scriptures and we say, does that sound like Jesus? And if the answer is no, then leave it at no. You don't have to resolve what it means. Just say, no, this is not Jesus. The, the book of Revelations, which people like to throw out. Well, one thing I was going to say about this that I forgot to mention, I think Wednesday, was that it wasn't accepted until the creeds were written into the canon, Okay. And even once it was accepted, you know what the, the church father said in the fourth century after the creeds were written? They says, okay, well, allow revelation because we think, it, it's, it, we think, we think it's, it's talking about Jesus, but we will not build any doctrine from it. You hear that? They will not use it to define who Jesus is. They says, we will not build doctrine from it. This is the early church fathers, first century, fourth century, right? The Cappadocian fathers. Uh, Gregory and Basil, some of the great guys that, that helped the creeds and helped define the Trinity. And by the way, uh, uh, Gregory was tutored by his sister. He doesn't seem to have a lot of formal education. He was taught by his sister. His sister was the great theologian in the family, but we don't have her writings. You know why? Why? She's a woman, She's a woman right? Men in the ancient world only cared about the dominance of men. Everything else was property to them. Everything, women, children, slaves, everything. But uh, 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 Macrina, I think, was her name. She taught Gregory. She educated him. I think there's something in his letter where he even refers to her as a better theologian. Imagine that. 
It's too bad we don't have our writings. Maybe we would have had more compassion in our scriptures or maybe more compassionate writings in the letters, right? But they get lost, right? They get lost, why? Because they're written from a male's point of view that's all about domination, control, and subjugation, right? That's why Paul said, don't let women teach. Why? Because women weren't educated. They weren't allowed to, right? It's like having some blethering idiot teach which we have a lot behind the pulpit today. Amen. I'm going to end with that. All right, let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Amen.